Chapter 12 of Dog Watches at Sea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King. Chapter 12 Hard Up and hard down. When a sailor sights a square-rigged vessel with a stumped four-to-gallant mast carrying no four-royal, he will remark in a scornful manner, no four-royal, no coffee in the morning. I don't know how this saying originated, but we carried a four-royal and we were served with coffee when called at five and after coffee began to tar down the rigging. Each day brought us nearer home. The very thought that the voyage would soon end was conducive to a contented spirit. For several days we were blackening the shrouds and stays, and when that was finished, the painting and holy stoning begin. We were restored to our usual watches. Bad, squally weather had set in, so the holy stones and sand were put into use. Until we entered the Gulf Stream, it was a constant push on a holy stone, and as we came on deck, the word was, Get your prayer books and say your prayers. Clothed in oilskin trousers, we would kneel and rub the stones on the deck with water and sand. The friction caused by the rubbing of the holy stone removed the dark surface of the wood and revealed its bright natural color. At the end of the voyage, our decks were as bright and clean as a newly planed plank. Even at night, the process of cleaning the deck was carried on. When a holy stone has been used till the hand has grown accustomed to its shape, more work can be done with it than with a new one. Each man was given a certain amount of deck to clean during his watch, and this induced us to hold on to our stones. We therefore took them below and placed them under our heads to have them ready for use when called on deck. Early one morning we had just relieved the watch. Our portion of scrubbing had been allotted to us, and we had already begun when Chris, a heavily built Dane, one of the St. Augustine men, accused me of having his holy stone. It was too dark for him to see, but as I was the smallest of the crowd, and he must growl with somebody, he said, King, you have my holy stone. No, I haven't. We were in a heated argument when the boatswain shouted, Stop your Portuguese argument and go ahead with your holy stoning. Chris said no more. At eight bells we went below to breakfast. We had helped ourselves to lobscous and a pot of coffee and retired to different corners of the forecastle to eat. I took my seat on the doorstep of the forecastle with my portion. Chris renewed the holy stone difference. We abused each other in strong language, which ended by his rushing at me with his sheath-knife. 
I checked his progress by dashing the contents of my Liverpool hook pot in his face and thereby saved myself. It frightened me when I saw the skin shrivel from the scalding effect of the hot coffee. Then the mate came forward and threatened to throw me over the side. Mr. Clifford, will you listen to me, sir? I said. I then told him of my narrow escape from the sheath knife. Great was my relief when he said, You did right, King. Pity you hadn't poured the whole kettle on him. Chris was oiled and greased and was forced to remain in his bunk for several days. I felt sorry for him. Still, it gave me prestige among the others. I had been taken advantage of by most of the men during the whole trip. I had endured their railing and invectives. Now they knew I was likely to protect myself from their bitter and sarcastic taunts. After this, I was not only unmolested, but on an equal footing with all forward. Without any incident worth recording, we raised the highlands of the Jersey coast and took a pilot for Sandy Hook. A towboat took our hawser and hauled us rapidly along. The sails were unbent, made up, and stowed in the lazarette. It took the boatswain most of his time to keep us clear of the boarding-house runners. They not only interfered by wanting to converse with us, but also watched their opportunity to give us their flasks of fire-water. I was determined to have no intercourse with the sharks, and not to implicate myself by accepting their liquor. As they approached me, I evaded their stubborn persistency by saying I had friends to stay with in New York. I had written home from Manila telling my mother to send her next letter to New York. As we tied up at the wharf, a representative from Fred Colcord's clothing store on South Street boarded us, bringing our mail. Can I describe my feelings, the fright, the quick pulsations of my heart, when a black-edged envelope was passed to me? I could see by stamps and postmark that it was from Barbados, but the handwriting was strange. I opened it, and drew from the folds of the enclosed letter this card. Died yesterday, 1st August, at Paynes Bay, St. James, Isabella Lewis, aged 54 years, wife of John King. Her funeral will take place this Saturday at 3.30 o'clock from St. Thomas Church, 2nd August, 1884. I quickly replaced letter and card in the envelope and struggled hard to make myself forget it and to cast from my mind the thought that death had taken from me my mother. As the tears gathered, I sought another channel into which to divert my thoughts. There was plenty of work to do. Even after the crew had left for the boarding-houses, I was assisting the boatswain to coil the gear of the courses in the tops. 
assured that no one was in the forecastle to witness my grief i took out the letter and read the sad news of my dear mother's death my father unable to see sufficiently to write himself had one of my sisters write for him i had planned to look for a ship sailing to barbados and to take her a portion of the wages due me i had built my castles in the air now there was no mother to welcome me home the boatswain ready to leave the ship came forward to lock the forecastle door and saw me in my distress his heart softened and in his sympathy i was invited to go home with him i would have fared as well in a sailor's boarding-house for although there were no sailors among the inmates this lodging-house was as vile and pernicious in its influence as any dive could be the lager beer can was ever on the go between the house and the saloons in two days we were officially discharged i had about thirty dollars due me so after buying a few articles of clothing and paying a week's board in advance i blew to the winds the little money i had and was stranded again i learned that captain painter of the brigantine pearl had arrived as he was an old friend of ours i had no trouble in securing a berth as able seaman on his ship just ten days after leaving the oleander i was outward bound to port of spain trinidad with him the pearl was an easy ship i made four trips to the west indies and the captain's home was my headquarters while in new york those were pleasant days on his vessel there was plenty of well-cooked food and with watch and watch there was ample rest below for his seamen the only discomfort was the lack of heat in the forecastle the forecastle on the pearl was a very small space with four bunks in the centre between these was the foremast so that there was hardly room to stand these four trips to the west indies were made in winter and i endured enough suffering from cold and exposure to fill me with rheumatism working cargo in the heat of the tropics made us especially susceptible to the cold weather on reaching the american coast it does seem strange that ship owners when building their ships never seem to think of having the sailors quarters large enough to contain a stove and should there perchance be room enough there is still no stove or means of making the place warm many a time i have felt it colder in the forecastle than on the open deck to keep warm we would turn in clothed in our stiff frozen oilskins and our wet sea boots the heat of the tropical sun opened the seams on the top of the forecastle and the falling spray would drip and form icicles over our bunks in such icy caves many seamen have endured the bitter cold and have suffered the effects of such treatment years afterwards lingering on sick beds with frames racked with rheumatism 
I had heard that the American coasting vessels were comfortable homes, so I decided to enjoy some of this home life on board ship and agreed with Captain Jacobson to sail as able seaman on his three-mastered schooner, the Bella Armstrong, taking a cargo of sulphur to Wilmington, North Carolina. This vessel proved to be a home while we were in American waters, but once clear of the coast, she was the warmest craft I had ever sailed in. In Wilmington, the sulphur was discharged some five miles up a creek where nobody lived. For fear of contracting malaria, we were conveyed each evening to the city in a towboat with the stevedores and housed in cheap lodgings, returning each morning to the ship. Malaria, or any kind of fever, would perhaps have been less hurtful than the influences of the vile and contaminating surroundings along the waterfront of Wilmington. Numerous saloons and dance halls, overcrowded, not only with black women, but also with the lowest corn crackers, were the only open doors wherein to while away the evenings of our two-week stay in this port. The sulphur discharged, we were towed down the river bound for Fernandina, to load heavy timbers of pitch-pine lumber for La Guaira, Venezuela. Without a pound of ballast, this flat-bottomed schooner could travel and not imperil our lives. Having a centerboard, we were constantly hauling it up and lowering it down. We reached the half-dead forsaken city of Fernandina and tied up at one of the wharves. Stevedores were engaged to stow the lumber while we sauntered around the decks hardly doing a thing. Mr. Gillespie, the mate, was taken sick with malaria and sent to the hospital. I called to see him, expecting to see an institution of comfort for the sick. Instead, I found him stretched on a cot in a room at the top of a house kept by a corn cracker, who made a living by providing such a shelter for sick seamen. She was well paid for her services, but the only benefit the patient derived from being at her home was his freedom from the stings of mosquitoes as she kept the windows screened. Nowhere have I seen these pests more numerous or venomous than in this town. We were nightly in a state of torment, with their hateful singing and troublesome bites, drawing the very life-blood from our faces, arms, and legs, till we were in a condition approaching madness. After a stay of three weeks, timbers all stowed, and the mate recovered from his illness, we were towed out of the river. We were minus one man, for a sailor had deserted, and it was almost impossible to secure another service. But Mr. Gillespie had visited a schooner moored close to us and had offered tempting inducements to a German to desert his ship and sail with us. So, about eleven that night, 
the mate and i rowed our small skiff under the bow of the schooner clandestinely met the german and rowed him to our craft next morning we tripped our anchor and started for la guayra we were no sooner clear of land than our easy times vanished and the mule driving began no afternoon or dog watch below constantly at work with only two men in a watch we were either at the wheel or lookout when on deck at night the food was meagre and it was useless to complain as the cook was a bully who sided with the after end mr hansen the second mate though more lenient than the mate was forced to work his watch to carry out mr gillespie's orders the poor german cursed the day he left his ship to join the bella armstrong on the afternoon of the nineteenth day from fernandina we came to anchor in the middle of the roadstead about half a mile from the town of la guayra preparations were immediately made for discharging the cargo an iron spike dog with a ring in it was driven into an end of each timber before landing it over the side when a quantity of timbers were lashed together they were cast loose from the ship and allowed to drift to leeward with the wind in a projecting point of land one afternoon the dog in a stick of timber fouled on the rail and was hauled out as the timber went shooting overboard away it went floating astern knowing that i could swim well enough to bring it back i jumped overboard and reached it i had just taken hold of it when i felt something rub against me and on looking saw a monstrous shark at my side i quickly jumped on the stick of timber fortunately it was buoyant enough to keep me out of the water away from the shark's mouth anxiously watching every motion of my would-be destroyer i lay flat on my stomach and yelled for help one of the native stevedores saw my predicament and pointing at me yelled to the mate on deck pronto hombre pronto jumping into a native dugout the second mate paddled to my rescue but i had drifted about forty feet from the ship before he reached me it was with a great sense of relief that i rolled myself into the canoe then together we paddled and pushed the timber back to the raft alongside the ship there were days when on account of the heavy swell rolling in it was impossible to work the cargo to roll and tumble about in such an unpleasant fashion worse than if we were under way is anything but cheering as the days went by we took advantage of what favorable opportunities we had and at last our sticks of timber were all hauled up on the sandy beach again without any ballast we were under way for maracaibo to load fustic wood for boston on sunday we were allowed to visit the shores of this slow-going place we tramped miles up the beach for the sake of an hour's surf bathing but ever on the alert for sharks the bay was alive with fish 
both small and large and when night came we would sit on the forecastle head watching them dart through the water upon some evenings the dusky men and maidens would row around our ship and serenade us playing spanish fandango airs on their guitars the fustic all in we started early one morning to beat our way out of the gulf a strong wind and tide being against us we made very little progress only when the tide was in our favor could we gain any headway the second afternoon we were drifting on a mud bank to save ourselves the starboard anchor was let go there must have been a flaw in a link of the chain near the anchor for while we were heaving on the windlass the chain parted fortunately the foresail and mainsail were set with the then favorable tide we edged our way along clear of the mud bank and let go the port anchor in deeper water now the work of finding our lost anchor began both our boats were lowered with a grappling iron and a new coil of rope we rowed over and over the location of the lost anchor hoping that the grappling iron might hook on to it tired and hungry we were kept in the hot sun dragging the bottom of the gulf to be continually towing a grappling iron with the fear that your efforts may be in vain is to say the least depressing exercise but mr gillespie did not lose hope he stubbornly held to the opinion that the anchor would be found on the next morning we began another day's search and that afternoon our efforts were successful the grappling iron hooked on to something which proved to be the anchor we brought the rope attached to the grappling iron between the two boats and rigged a spanish windlass a boat's mast was placed over the gunwales of the boats so that the two ends extended outside the two outer gunwales then the grappling rope was secured to the mast between the boats a small crowbar was lashed to each end of the mast to be used as levers in revolving the mast as the mast revolved it wound up the grappling rope and by holding the strain on the crowbars we lifted the anchor under the bottom of the boats a lashing was passed through the shackle and our prize secured to the stern of the larger boat i had heard of the spanish windlass and although tired and weary the experience of having to rig one was compensation enough once more we were under way for home and with strong trade winds we bowled along it was midwinter january when we reached the american coast for three days we sailed wing and wing before a stiff southwest gale the old man was determined to make gay head with this favorable wind and he drove the bella armstrong through it to heave a ship's wheel over when she is racing and griping as we were is no child's play it was necessary for two men to be at the wheel hard up and hard down 
Look out you don't jibe her. At times the wheel would get away from the helmsman and spin around like a buzzsaw. Once she came to with a vengeance and smothered herself as she drove under a monstrous sea, staggering like a drunken man and dripping like a half-drowned rat she would answer her helm and wear her nose before it. She steered so badly that although it was bitter cold, the two men would come from the wheel dripping with perspiration as though they had been hoisting sugar hogsheads in the tropics. We passed Gayhead and anchored in Tarpaulin Cove. For eighteen days we tried to reach Cape Cod, but could not accomplish it. Whenever we started, all the schooners at anchor would follow suit, and that night we would be at anchor again in some part of Vineyard Sound. At length, a southwest wind lasted long enough to run us up inside the Cape. Minot's light was passed. A towboat took hold of us and hauled us to an ice-packed berth at an East Boston wharf. I had told my shipmates of my determination to keep clear of the sailors' boarding houses, and they had agreed to do likewise. As a consequence, the land sharks soon left us. While tying up the ship, Mr. Rose, a junk man in search of old rope and the contents of the shakings barrel, visited us. We learned that he had room to board us with his family, so we put our traps in his boat and went across the river with him to his home on Tileston Street. For two weeks I breathed the demoralizing atmosphere of the north end of Boston. My money was exhausted. The weather was severe. The very thought of having to go to sea to suffer cold and the hard usage like the experience on the Bella Armstrong was painful. During my ramble around the sailor district, I formed the acquaintance of one of Uncle Sam's blue shirts. From him I learned the whereabouts of the Navy Yard and that both seamen and ordinary seamen were wanted on the Wabash. Next morning, February 10, 1886, I entered the Navy Yard gate. After being questioned as to my business by the Marine on guard at the gate, I was directed to take the path leading to the Wabash and pass my examinations. The sight of the big guns, officers in brass buttons, everything having a military appearance made me somewhat timid. I reached the scow and was conveyed to the guardship. I told the officer of the deck I wanted to enlist as ordinary seamen. I might have enlisted as seamen, but on account of my age, I was afraid of being rejected. I was eighteen years old, and one of the qualifications was that the applicant should be twenty-one. No one but an apprentice could enlist under that age. Being questioned regarding my age, I said I was twenty-one. I suppose I looked that old, as there was no hesitation on the part of the officer. 
After examining me upon sending aloft mast and yards, the use of the lead line, and the various points of the compass, I was turned over to a stout, good-natured boatswain's mate, Bob Wilkes, for his examination in seamanship. He had me make a few splices and serve some marlin on the iron rail around the hatch combings and passed me as a qualified ordinary seaman. I knew I was collar-blind in red, green, and brown and feared the doctor's examination. Many a night at sea I had seen a light while on the lookout and had shouted, Light, ho! At the word from the officer of the watch, can you make it out, I would guess, sometimes correctly. At other times I would be subjected to his abuse and called a thickhead for not knowing a red from a green light. Whenever I was sent to put out the side lights, I would have to read port or starboard on the lamps to know which was which. Or I would wait till one of the watch had taken a side light and then I would take the remaining one and put it in the box opposite his. Sometimes, on seeing a light, as the officer would say, Can you make it out? I would, if near him, shout, There it is, sir, and so keep him from discovering my colorblindness. It was afternoon before my turn came to meet the doctor. Away in the forepeak, was the sick bay, and here he overhauled my frame. He had me perform the antics of a circus clown, and satisfied that I was sound in body and mind, passed me over to the apothecary, old Doc Warren, to test my color sight. Doc Warren was in a hurry to leave the ship. He produced a box filled with skeins of different colored wool. Had he taken a bit of green, red, or brown, I should have guessed, as between these I cannot discriminate. As it was, he drew a skein of blue from the box, saying, What color is this? Oh, that's blue. I guess you're not color blind. I guess not. I can see your nose is not red. This remark produced a smile. The box was closed, and I was declared a qualified, ordinary seaman in every way. The ship's writer brought us before the executive officer, and we who were to enlist that day swore a faithful allegiance to Uncle Sam. The paymaster's clerk and his yeoman with his ever-faithful Jack of the Dust, Bill Griffin, served us our clothing, beds, and hammocks, and I, with seven others, donned the blue uniform of the American Navy. Then I sent word to Mr. Rose to take my citizens' clothes away. They were kind people. I liked them, and gave them every stitch I owned, thereby severing all connections with the garb of civil life. End of chapter 12